Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast hosted by Renew. My name is Chris. Great to be with you again here today. In this episode, Jim Putman describes the methodology in his new books, Relationship and the Revolutionary Disciple. He teaches on different levels of Christian maturity and how a mature disciple engages in relationships, what that even looks like. He has some really great points, one of them being the Son of God shared with fishermen. Who do you think you are? In our culture today, sometimes it's hard to remember that the reality of it is Jesus shared with everyday people and lived as an everyday person, even though he was the son of God. We hope you enjoy this content and what Jim has to say today. Good to have all of you here. Thanks for for coming. Um, I'm actually going to share just a little bit about, uh, I've got a couple of new books that are out. One's called um, The Revolutionary Disciple, and the other is called Relationship, and we have them here, and uh, I'll just share with you a little bit about what this is about and what the Lord's been doing with me. Um, you know, I, how many of you are still growing, and you just realize you haven't yet attained it, and you're pressing on, and then as you move forward, you kind of go, wow, I don't believe some of the same things I did before. Anybody else? That's it. That's all. Because um, the problem with writing books is you put what you believed in the past in the book. And you can't really erase it. Uh, and so honestly, uh, you know that uh, I write a lot about discipleship. I want to live that out in my life. I want to have a church where disciples are made. And I want to define what that means because so many people use words but they have different meanings. And one thing I, I realized as a coach and a sports guy is that um, you can have the greatest players on the planet, but if they don't have the same language, when you call a play in the huddle, so to speak, you can't win on the line of scrimmage. Would you agree with that? Or you can have the greatest musicians in the world, but if they're not running by the same sheet of music, the same timing, it, it sounds terrible. So it doesn't really matter how great you are, you don't play well uh, if you're not on the same team. And we live in a world where there's a thousand different ways to do a thousand different things within the Christian church. And Jesus said it this way, a house divided against itself can't stand. The Tower of Babel tells us one day they can do anything. God changes one thing and now they can't finish what they were doing even though they had all the same skill sets. He changed language. And so we've been about discipleship for 25 years, it's our 25, 25th year anniversary since we planted the church, and I just can't believe that I'm even saying that. It seems like yesterday, but in other words, it seems like forever. We've been trying to do the same thing, uh, and we've created a, a training. It's called Discipleship Training, where we, we, um, we bring in churches, but it's very experiential. It's not like a big conference. It's very little talking head, because uh, there's a difference between small groups and discipleship in small groups. A lot of people have done small groups, but small groups by themselves, unless you have an intentional leader, they don't actually make disciples. They create kind of friend groups. They create little bombs that are going to go off because people get in fights and, and they can create schisms. You know, we got churches that, that are called church plants, but really come from a small group that decided they wanted to break away. I mean, small groups isn't what we're about. We're about discipleship in small groups. And so we created these trainings, but here's where relationship, the book came from. After sitting down and talking with people 
uh, about what they were getting from what we were saying. I didn't like what I was hearing. What I heard people saying is that relationship is Jesus' methodology for making disciples. That's true. When Jesus said, go make disciples, he didn't mean go do it any way you wanted. He had just made disciples with them, and now he said, go and do what I did. And so, yes, when Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, he was, he was describing, you're going to follow me, I'm going to change you, and you're going to become fishers of men. But it also embedded in that little verse in Matthew 4.19 is this invitation to come and be with him. So the whole of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John anyway, is sometimes we take the teachings and the, and the person of Jesus, but we forget that he's discipling through the whole process and we can actually follow the method that he's using, who he talked to, when he talked to him, how he did it. He had big groups, but always in the small groups and you can just see how he did it and a lot of people don't do that. So I agree that discipleship uh, happens in relationship with an intentional leader. I agree with that. But here was the, the problem that, that p- people were missing. They were kind of looking at relationship as a means to an end. I'm going to be in relationship with you so that I can help you to know the word of God and to understand that you're a, a servant and, you're, and, and, and so you've got information and, and you're going to learn skill sets to go out. And But there's this piece that was missing. It was, here's what I really mean. It's in relationship that I learned to be a person of relationship with God and relationship with others. Relationship is not just a tool. It's a end unto itself. It's a rela- Let me say it this way. A lot of people, remember Paul said this, you can know all mysteries and speak in the tongues of angels and of men, but if you have not love, you're a clanging symbol. You can sell your possessions to give to the poor, you can offer your body a flame. You can be a, a martyr, but if you have not love, you're nothing. What he's saying is you can know a lot and you can do a lot, but if, you, if, you're, if you're not growing in love, in relationship, you're not mature in Christ. And then he goes on to describe what love is, because if he's going to say you need to love, he understood what we understand. That word has been used a thousand different ways. So if we're going to say it's about love, then we better talk about what love means, We have a culture that uses the word love. We have a bunch of Christians who use the word love, but they have no idea what it means. They think it actually means, I have to affirm your sin. No, 1 Corinthians says, love does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So love is not to merely affirm. Love means that sometimes, I love what scripture says, that wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Love can actually mean I'm going to wound you because I love you. Not just to be mean or I'm going to tell you the truth in a, in a rude or harsh way. Sometimes the way we go about loving, it doesn't really, it's not very loving. But the point being is, it's about relationship. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember this in Matthew 22? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like unto it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and the prophets, everything written hangs on those two commands. Every one of the 10 commandments was about love for God and love for others. Think about it. Have no other God before me. Love God. Spend time with me on the Sabbath, 
right? Then he goes to don't lie, don't, don't commit adultery. Don't, that's all love for others. So it's love for God, love for others. And as a believer in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it builds people into a relational kind of people. So when it comes to discipleship, as I follow Jesus, he's changing me into being someone who loves God and loves others well and allows them to love me as well. So let me, just, let me just say it this way. Here's the lowest level of maturity. It's like dead. Dog eat dog. You take care of you, I'll take care of me. Making sense to you? Second level of maturity. I'm going to help you but I'm not going to let you help me. I've grown so much that I'm a helper, but I don't need any help. That's the second level of maturity, but it's still immature. Here's the highest level of maturity. I'm going to help you, and you're going to help me. Why is that? Because I'm fallen, because I have a sin nature, because I struggle to do what I, I want to do. Sometimes... I make mistakes, I fail. Sometimes I need someone to carry my burdens. Sometimes I need to confess my sin one to another. Do you think you actually get to the place of spiritual maturity where none of those things apply to you? God gives his grace to me in relationship. Oftentimes, yes, there's a direct source of grace in your life, but God often uses other people to administer his grace to me. In its various forms, the scripture says. I, as a leader, need people in my life. So, when I say that relationship isn't just a tool to be used so I can somehow teach you better information. Is it true? In a small group, in relationship, Q&A, modeling, you actually learn better? Yep, that's absolutely true. But it's in relationship that I, I have the ability to live out what I think they ought to know and do. My life verse is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. See to it, my brothers, that none of you gets a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily so that your hearts are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another daily. Why? Because our hearts are prone to unbelief. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and God's people that help me get to the finish line. Is this making sense to you? Let me just tell you an analogy I think that works really well, and it's actually true. I, uh, where I live, we have 50 lakes and 50 miles. We have rivers, all different kinds of rivers. And um, we have a river called the St. Joe River that in the winter, the, the snowfall uh, melt makes it a raging, crazy river. But in the summer, it's one of the greatest fly fishing rivers in the world, and uh, it's just, it's like this slow, meandering, not very deep, beautiful uh, river. And everybody goes tubing on the rivers. 
I mean, you go there in the summer and you won't find a parking spot along the river and everybody's in these different sorts of rafts and tubes and they got, the thing that drives me crazy is, you know, they got a tube for their beer in their, and, and they got radios blasting as you go down the river. I got out here to get away from all that, right? But one, one year, my, I got three sons, their wives, grandkids. I got them little grandkids, older grandkids. We decided um, we're going to float the river. And so we go out to the St. Joe River. It's a really simple, I got little kids, and we, we don't have enough tubes for everybody. So we stop by Walmart, and we get us some tubes, some really cheap tubes. And so we get down to the river, and we've got the, uh, I even have a, I, I don't know how you guys will feel about this, but I got a car seat inside a tube with one of my grandkids. I got my older grandkids, right? And then we tie all of our tubes together, and we're floating down the river. And I'm kind of in the back so that if anything happens, I can get there real quick, right? And, you know, it's, it's one of those rivers where if you stop, you can stand up if you have to. But now if you're a baby, you can't, so you got to watch, right? But, but we're floating down this river. And as I'm floating, I've got some time to think between trying to save my older grandkids from killing each other and all the stuff that goes on with that. And I'm thinking... I've got all these grandkids and these kids, and we're facing this culture. And this kind of hits me. If our culture right now is like a river, is our culture like this St. Joe River in the middle of the summer? Or is it more like the Salmon River, a Class 5 river, that is super dangerous, and I mean, you, you got to know what you're doing. You're not floating it in a $5 Walmart tube, right? If you're floating in that river, it's like you go, if you're going to do that, you pay money. They've got this big raft. I mean, it's like, and they, you, they put all this, they got helmets, they got equipment. They are, uh, they're actually um, training you. Before you get in, they take you to the slow part of the river, and they train you for two hours before you take the river. And they got a guy in there that knows the river. They teach you how to grab people. They teach you all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's an exhilarating, I mean, you go up, and you know, and then they got swirling holes, and they got, if our culture is like a river, what kind of river is it? Is it more like the St. Joe in the summer, or is it more like a class five? What do you guys think? Class five. Then it hit me, if our tubes or rafts are our faith life, are most people trying to get down a class five river in a $5 Walmart tube, or are they trained on the river with a guide, with a team, been trained to, to be able to get through this culture. And I started thinking about that. I even started thinking about my grandkids, you know. If the, if the culture is a, right now they're pretty, it's pretty safe for them. They're at home, you know, they're being cared for, all that. But what do they got coming? This, this culture that's going absolutely crazy, and what do I want their faith life to actually be like a $5 Walmart tube or a river raft 
with the equipment, with training, and, do, and they're going to have to lead their family. So do I want them just to be able to float, and be, be, you know, as a part of a team, or do I want them to lead to be a part of a team? What do I want these, these kids to be? And then I started thinking about, all right, now if you've got a life raft, what are the components? What, what do you need in a life raft what do you need with a team that's going to get through that kind of, of uh, culture? Class five. What kind of faith life do they need? What do, we, what do we got to build around them? And for me, this has always been about discipleship. But let me just say it to you this way. Here's what first came to my mind. If the pastors, let's just focus on pastors for a minute. If the pastors, if I was just looking at pastors, what kind of tube or raft are they in themselves? Now, I say that because um, I work with pastors all around the world. And let me tell you what I see. I see lonely, discouraged. I see... Addicted, I'm hearing about suicides. Uh, I see very, I I see proud and arrogant. I see the leaders who are supposed to be helping people create life rafts, I see them on a $5 Walmart tube themselves. I I was at... uh, I went to a foreign country not that long ago, and I'm sitting with a group of leaders that run this ministry that had hundreds of thousands of baptisms. And I was there to help train them on, beyond education, discipleship. And as I'm sitting there listening to them report as a a group of leaders on their ministry, I mean, they, they're talking about hundreds of thousands of baptisms, and they're talking about Bible colleges, and they're talking about stuff, and I'm like, wow, hmm, why am I here? Because, I mean, they're ta- using the word discipleship, and they're, they're doing all this stuff. And so they asked me, well, what are you writing? What are you doing? What's your newest stuff on? And I said, well, I'm just watching pastors really lonely, um, isolated, um, not a lot of trust, even on their own staffs, um, on the verge of quitting. And uh, so one of the people in the room uh, who's leading this, I mean, massive ministry says, hey, I'll just be real honest, Jim. I don't trust anybody outside of this room. I don't trust anybody outside of this room. Now, they got thousands of paid staff. They got tens of thousands of volunteers. And they don't trust one person outside of the room. Now, I have to tell you, as I went through the rest of the week, I thought I was going to be there training on discipleship. It ended up being counseling session between those people in in that group. They actually didn't trust anybody in the group either. And so I asked this question. I said, I thought you guys... We're making disciples. It doesn't sound like you're making very good disciples. 
It sounds like you're making converts and you're calling it discipleship because if you're actually making disciples and they're growing up in Christ, they should be the most trustworthy people you know. If they're becoming like Jesus, they should be people who you can trust to share your stuff with. When there's an argument, you can trust that we're going to work it out together rather than just quitting or leaving. If, if there's a problem, and there will be, because there are people in this room with their own stuff, their own way of hearing things. This should be a committed place like a marriage, you know, like a, like a, a group of people that, that have each other's back. This should be a family, not an organization that you just work at. It doesn't sound like you're making disciples as I understand discipleship. And so now you're in the, in the charge of the, this massive ministry, and if you guys don't trust each other, how much do the people outside of this room trust you? And if, if there isn't trust and family and relationship, if you guys aren't uh, uh, sticking together, and this isn't a family first, organizational second, then what's it look like? It's like a house of cards. What are you raising people up to? To love well, to forgive well, to give grace to one another, to actually live out the one another's? No, it sounds like it's just how many decisions do you have? How big a show do you put on? So you can report that you're doing something in some way. Notches in some way. Where is discipleship in that? As Jesus defined it. Jesus said this, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By the numbers of baptisms you have. No, that's not what it says. By your love for one another. What do we have? We have pastors moving from church to church to church. Why is it easy to move from church to church to church? Well, first of all, uh, pastors have decided that going to a bigger area, a bigger church is success. So it's a stepping stone. And you don't really have relationships. It's not hard to leave, though we call ourselves a church family. It's not hard to leave because you don't have any deep roots there, any real relationships. So it's pretty easy to be friendly, but friendliness and politeness is not love. Now, why, remember how I started. What is a mature disciple? I mean, that's super important. If we're going to make disciples, we better know what they are, and you better know how to make them. We can, we can take a word, a biblical word, and tweak its meaning, and the, the word loses its power. Use the word love. Everybody loves something. Love, 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 America. But uh, It uses the word love a lot, but what is love? It's an act of the will to lay down your life for the other. Church has become a place you come to. And the reason people can move from church to church to church is because they haven't learned maturity. And where were they going to learn maturity from? Well, they're pastors who just go from church to church to church. Or just talk about something, but don't actually model anything. They were actually taught, don't be friends with people because you'll lose your ability to, to, have, uh, to be able to speak. They were actually taught in Bible college something completely contrary to what Jesus actually taught. And so, pastors are isolated and lonely, don't feel like they can share. Oh, they might have a Bible college guy they went to years ago, but nobody in their own church. And if they're ever going to get counsel, they're going to pay 150 bucks an hour because they don't actually really have any friends. 
And if the head's built that way, what do you think is going to happen? What's going, if that's what's celebrated in church, when people come to church, it's how you doing? Fine, fine, fine. We're good. Now, me, I, I come from an addiction background. I went to AA. I remember, I'm glad I did, because when I went to the church, I was as a brand new addict. Everybody was fine. How are you doing? Fine. Blessed and highly favored. I wasn't fine. I had to walk away from my friends. I was battling addiction. And then I went to AA, and it's like, hey, my name's Jim Putman. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober 13 days. Man, I'm so glad to have you. Get a sponsor. Up oh, 33 days in, I fall off the wagon. Oh, dude. I don't even feel like I can go back there. Sponsor. Hey, you okay? What's going on? Hi, my name's Jim Putman. I was sober 33 days. Man, I'm so glad you're here, dude. How did AA steal what's in the Bible and the church give it up? Because the truth is, what I found out later is every single person in that church was jacked up. But everybody's fine. See, it's in relationship where you actually model and teach and show and question and answer. You give people a chance. Yes, relationship is super important, but it's in relationship that you build relationship so that you can get through life. I want to read this to you, and I know you probably have heard this a thousand times, but it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Remember, under the sun in Ecclesiastes means in the natural world, taking God out of it. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless under the sun. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. So he's lonely, doesn't have a family, he doesn't have friendships. And there is no end to his toil. He had plenty of work to do. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth, so he's rich. He's got money and plenty of work to do, but he's all alone. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. You know what I just described? Americans. Plenty of work to do, going a thousand miles an hour, plenty of wealth, but unsatisfied. We're the wealthiest country in the world. But we have the highest addiction rate, highest suicide rate, highest divorce rate, highest uh, mental health issue rate, because our sinful nature is insatiable, and, and storing up treasure on earth doesn't make you happy. And Scripture says the man who loves wealth will never have enough. That's why Jesus says what he says. Don't store up treasure, moth and rust destroy, thieves break it and steal. He's miserable. What a miserable business is, is, is what this actually says. But then he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. They get better work done. Why? Well, because 
you know, the IQ grows as we do stuff together. We, we were meant to be a body. I mean, this is all fulfilled and made more clear in the New Testament. We have different abilities. We have different insights. And in the Holy Spirit, we come together and we see both things are needed, not just my thing is needed. And it's just a better return for your labor. He says, there's a better return for your work. If one falls down, and, and literally, by the way, it's not if one falls down. It, when one falls down, his friend can help him up. His friend actually notices that he fell down. So many people call themselves friends, but you wouldn't know whether they fell down or not. And they certainly wouldn't know whether you fell down or not because we don't actually spend time looking into each other's eyes. We're too busy looking at social media or what's the Fox News or MSNBC or whatever we're looking at. We're so distracted that we think we're going to actually have friends on social media. We don't actually have relationship in the church. And listen, we can't ask too much of our church because they only have an hour and 15 minutes a, a week, if that, and that's only 1.1 times a month. So we've got to do the best thing we can, put on the best show. We'll talk about relationship, but people don't actually have it. We don't have it as pastors because we're so busy putting out fires or working on sermons or worrying about our, our marketing or our whatever. We don't have actual time for relationships, so it makes sense that the people that we lead don't actually either. Relationships just a nice idea. There's no help. And because people don't have relationship, it's like in that raft, you know, if the, if the pastor actually does have a life raft of his own, where he does have better return, and he actually is uh, in a life raft with a team, if his job is just to be in his own life raft, and it's not to help people equip them to be in life rafts of their own, you got a thousand people pulling on your life raft, and you, and you know what? They drowned you. You're exhausted because it's your job to help everybody, to, to be everybody's life raft. And that's not your job. Your job wasn't to be everybody's life raft. Your job was to help model and equip people so that they have life rafts. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and there's no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That speaks of intimacy in the, in the cold of a desert night when it's, it's, it's cold and, you're, and you, you lie down. We're not talking about sex here. We're talking about friendship where we actually know each other. He goes on. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. There's an enemy. There's war. You can't defend yourself alone. You know that Ephesians 6 passage that says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms? You know that does have some personal application but he's not writing that to an individual. He's writing that to a church. We wrestle against the spiritual forces. We put on the spiritual armor together. There's parts of a spiritual armor you can't even put on by yourself. Those who lived at that time know that. You had to have a, an arms keeper that helped you put it on. And then they didn't, they, they didn't have anything at their back, so they stood at each other's back. You will get in a fight. You will be in a spiritual battle. And you cannot win alone, and you weren't supposed to. Now, you, you know how many times I've heard this, <laughs> this passage at weddings? I've even used it at a wedding. 
And then notice what it says next. And we know this isn't a marriage context because he says, but a cord of three strands can be, cannot be easily torn apart. He's not talking about a marriage because he wouldn't be adding a third strand. He's talking about three are better than two and four are better than three and five are better than four. He's talking about we are called to be together, to create a life raft where if somebody starts to slip, we notice. We grab them. We fight for each other. We do life together. You see, right now, more than ever, we got a bunch of people. We got a bunch of people, individuals, who think the organizational structure supersedes relationship. In other words, I'm the boss, therefore I can't be in relationship with my staff or my people. And I'm always like, wow, that's not really what Jesus did. I mean, I can't tell my people about what's going on. Jesus, in front of his disciples, wept and was so uh, upset that he sweat blood. And he said to his disciples, would you please pray with me? My soul is grieved to the point of death. The son of the living God shared with fishermen, who do you think you are? Right now, our culture is raging, guys. It's raging. And if our people don't get in life rafts as God designed it, the recipe of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints didn't just have to do with doctrine, Jude 3. It had to do with life. Timothy was told, hold to your life and doctrine closely. There is a way of life that isn't, there's a way of living out the faith that you see in Scripture. They met together in the temple courts and from house to house. They, they did life together. See to it that you don't get a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another. That word encourage means to admonish, to exhort. How often? Daily. So that your hearts won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That, is the Holy Spirit in the habit of telling us to do something that we don't actually need to do? No. We need each other daily. You know, I, I can tell you this. I can get jacked up in the head in an hour. I can do it in five minutes. The church that we've designed is built around the least you can get away with. And, and, and don't, don't upset people because they want to sit and they want to watch. And they're kind of addicted to that. But that's not what Jesus called disciples and leaders to do. They're to be a model. To imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. To what did that mean as a leader? To live the kind of life. And what kind of life did Paul live? Did he ever go anywhere alone? He discipled people who discipled people. He said to Timothy, raise up reliable men. You've, I've done it with you. We have turned the church into something you go to instead of something that you're a part of. And if we're going to make changes, it starts with leaders first. And out of the overflow of our own lives... People see what a life raft looks like, and then we equip them to, to lead that and to, in their own families. How many parents actually disciple their kids? They think their job is to take their kids to a, the, the youth minister. That's his job. Hey, the church is supposed to help support, but 
it's supposed to happen in the homes, but most people were never discipled in the homes. So all they got is to go to the church. They had the youth show and you got the adult show. Somewhere along the line, we got to get out of the box that we were handed and start going back to the method that was handed down to us in Scripture. That's kind of what the book's about. And um, there's nothing easy about it. There's nothing easy about anything right now. Has everybody noticed that? There's nothing easy about anything right now. But at least doing this, we fight the right fights. Some of you may be saying, well, I can't find a good friend. I can't do that. Well, if you're disciple-making, as I started with the story about uh, the, uh, the, the church I was working with, most people know what friendship looks like from the world's perspective, and they come to the church, and they bring with them their model or methodology for friendship. But you know the Bible actually has a lot to say about friendship? And part of discipleship is to teach people to be friends. If you're waiting for a friend to happen when you're a leader, that's a huge mistake. It's kind of like saying, well, these people, if I preach on Sunday, the families, the parents will actually parent correctly without any classes or training or whatever. It'll just happen. Friendship has to be something that you model, you explain, and you live out. And it's painful. Especially when you're leading people that don't know what friendship is. They make mistakes. That's why there's grace. Let me just close with this illustration. In wrestling, that's what I understand. That's how I know more, you know, that's where I came from. I understood that before I... Um, and I've modeled most of the ministry after coaching and, and doing those kind of things. Because, you know, wrestling is the only biblical sport. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual. Oh, okay, there's some running and boxing maybe, but basketball, definitely not. No. Um, I was, a, you know, pretty good at wrestling, and I was a coach. And you want to know the hardest people to wrestle it wasn't an expert wrestling. You don't get hurt with an expert wrestler, typically. It was always the first-time wrestlers. didn't matter how many state championships or national championships I was a part of. Wrestling with a brand-new wrestler was the most painful thing. Here's why. They don't know how to stand. They don't know how to fall. When they fall, they got their elbow. See, when you wrestle a lot, you know how to fall. You know how to do things. You don't get hurt in that uh, so much. You get hurt by people who don't know what they're doing. But if you're ever going to have a wrestler learn to be a wrestler, you got to take them where they are, and you got to be willing to get hurt. Jesus came to people who didn't know how to be in relationship, and he went first. He was willing to get hurt. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you know you're going to get hurt. You have to go first. Good leadership goes first to lay down your life. And then you have to have a lot of grace, and you have to teach them a lot. And as time goes by, they get better and better and better. You've got to develop people into this. But it isn't just going to happen because you educate them. You can't get good at a game of any kind of game by sitting on the bench. And you never say, you'll get in the game when you get excellent at being in the game. Because you can't get excellent at anything by watching. The best you're ever going to get is an informed spectator. It starts with the leaders. It starts with the leaders. 
starts with you. Not going back and systematizing everything. It starts with you going first. That's your first step. Become a mature disciple of Jesus and watch what he does next in your church. But it starts with you. Thanks for joining us again. We really hope that Jim's content blesses you and you can take some of the things that he said and apply them in your ministry. If you haven't checked out Renew.org, we just invite you to go on there, check out what we're all about. We have this weekly podcast. We have a couple weekly podcasts, actually. We also have free eBooks, a lot of materials for churches and church leaders. We also have our 2024 National Gathering in Indianapolis that we're really excited about. We'd love for you to grab your tickets. They're the best prices they're going to be, and we'd love to see you there.